0: It's been a long time since I've been up here with Colossians, but um, be here this morning, and we will be coming to an end of a section we started, um, I think it must have been end of May, uh, if I can remember correctly, I preached in Colossians last, so we are going to be in Colossians chapter 2 this morning, but I will pick up my reading from chapter 1, in verse 24 but before i do that let's go to the lord in the word of prayer father we come to you this morning with thankfulness in our hearts for all that has become made over to us because of the finished work of calvary we lord we focus on ourselves all the time and often forget that the work of calvary was to glorify you that you sent your son to die as an offering for sin so that you could ultimately be glorified that your wrath could be assuaged and that you could pour judgment on that which you did not, did not create that sin could be dealt with and that your people could be redeemed this morning as we have come together to gather before you and to have your word open to us we pray that you may speak to us that you speak to the to speaker and hearers alike and as your word touches our hearts that our hearts may be changed and as we look at the life of this church, and as they are guided and pastored and eventually admonished by the Apostle Paul, may the lessons that they, that they learn be the lessons we learn too, so that we can live lives that glorify and honor you. We pray for your blessing upon us in the Savior's name and for His sake alone. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 says, "Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake." of glory him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in christ for this i toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works with in me chapter 2 verse 1 for i want you to know how great a struggle i have for you and for those who are those at laodicea And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And we pray God's blessing on the reading of his word as we consider these these portions this morning. We are going to focus primarily on chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 this morning as we come to a close of a section we started, which starts in chapter 1, verse 24. In chapter 1, verse 24 to 29, Paul gives an account of his ministry in to the body of Christ, which is the church. And he does this by pointing to several things. He speaks about the physical suffering endured for the sake of the church, a suffering he identifies as he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, chapter 1, verse 24. And if you are new to this church or haven't been part of the sermon series, you will get that sermon online. Uh, we are preached through chapter 1. Verse 24 to 29. Number two, he talks about the stewardship he received from God to make the word of God fully known. Number three, the proclamation of this word focused on the revealing of the mystery that till now has been hidden for ages and generations, namely, that the Gentiles share in the hope of glory, glory, that is Christ in you, the 126 and 27. And finally, in that section, Paul struggles or strives with all the energy of Christ working in him to, in order to present everyone mature in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 28 to 29. And that was uh, a, a, where we preached through, when we preached that section in a previous sermon. This morning, we are focusing on a section from chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And as we get to the section, we see Paul drawing the section Drawing the section, the his public minister an end uh, at the end of this uh, of the sermon. Paul has uh, grouped certain things together. Uh, he first started with speaking about after his initial greetings, speaking about the work of God, and then he spoke about the supremacy of Christ in all things, both in creation and in the church, and how Christ is the center of all things, and all things exist because of Him. And he is one who is over all things. And then Paul came to the section which we are going to finish off this morning, where he preached about his ministry as the apostle called to minister to the church, the body of Christ. Here in chapter 2, verse 1, we see the continuation of Paul's struggles, mentioned in chapter 1, verse 29. But now, rather than for the church at large, he's going to now start narrowing his focus. And his focus is narrowed to the churches at Colossae and Laodicea, and the rest of the believers in the Lycus Valley region. It doesn't mention Hierapolis here. It is mentioned at the end of the book, chapter 4, verse 13. But uh, this church, uh, uh, Hierapolis, uh, together with Laodicea and Colossae, they were in a valley called the Lycus Valley, and Paul is preaching, or rather, writing to them. He has not met them in person, or as he states, Those those have not seen my face in the flesh, or face to face. Thus narrowing of his attention to the Lycus Valley churches is his way of transitioning into dealing with the specific problems at Colossae, and possibly the other local churches too. And from chapter 2, verse 6 onwards, he's going to deal with those issues in the church when he starts unpacking the heresies that are coming in through false teachers and he's preparing the church and probably Colossians and Colossians mentioned and possibly the rest of the churches in the Lycus Valley that he's preparing to deal with a, a rising trend of false teaching and he's going to prepare them to deal with that Paul has a strong desire that they should not be unaware of the significance of his struggle and he starts by saying that and he struggled for them it was a struggle that included the suffering he endured in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles Remember we spoke very uh, quite a bit on how he struggled as he presented the gospel to the churches around the Mediterranean Sea or those areas and how that was a way, the way of him filling up the suffering that he sees filling up the suffering uh, in Christ. And so Paul suffered in that way to bring the gospel to those who were in the Mediterranean Sea area where he planted churches and went back frequently to minister to, to them. The struggle he speaks about also included the proclamation to all the saints, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that he may may present them mature in Christ. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 28 to 29. But the struggle that Paul speaks about, it was not only for those to whom he ministered directly, but also for those whom he had never seen. Those he had never met in person. Paul writes to a church that, didn't know him personally. Paul writes to believers that had never seen him face to face, had never seen his face in the flesh, had never seen him in person. Yet Paul writes to them with the same amount of passion and pastoral care and love and devotion as though he had been with them all the time. They'd never met him in person, but he still treated them as though he was one, they were one of those whom he had met before. And because he could not reach everyone in person, the struggle for maturity was a shared struggle. Paul was a, uh, an apostle who uh, had an extensive work, but he was only one man. He was a man who worked tirelessly. He was a man who worked without any let, of, let up of, of, of energy. He continued to push on and persevere, but he was only one man. And at this point in time, he's one man who's in prison. And unable to even reach the churches not only that he knew but meet with those whom he had not met and so paul with the struggle that he has for bringing the believers to maturity he shares this struggle with others who are like-minded in colossians chapter 4 verse 12 at the end of this book we'll get there eventually epaphras who was from colossi who was from the Lycus valley and who most likely was the one who planted the churches, or certainly preached the gospel in the areas the churches were started, Epaphras is with Paul in person, and Paul sends him back. And he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayer. So the struggle that Paul had for the saints, he had passed on that to those who followed him, those who he was discipling. He wasn't just struggling as a one-man band. His struggle had rubbed off, his desire for serving the saints rubbed off on those who served in the gospel with him. He says, uh, he greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For our being witness, he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea. And in Herapolis. That is in chapter 4, verse 13. And here we see the churches all three brought together in this one epistle. This is really a, 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 a indictment to us in so many ways. When we realize that this is being done, this the struggle for the maturity of the saints, this determination to work hard, this, this desire to see the saints being fed by God's word and to grow and to just become. Uh, more um, committed in what they had come to receive. Um, was done in the time. It was hard. Uh, there was no cars. Um, perhaps couldn't Uber to uh, Colossi; uh, It wasn't possible. Uh, we take these things for, con- for, for, for granted. Uh, we take the spirit of the gospel as a burden. We so often uh, fail to see that there's a need of, for us to struggle so that our brothers and sisters mature in the faith and we could be struggling in prayers, we could be struggling in discipleship as he discipled Epaphras, we could be struggling in so many different ways but we should be working hard at doing what the Apostle Paul did was that he may cause the saints to grow to maturity. And so he writes to churches he has never visited with the same fervor, devotion and earnestness that he has for the churches he ministered to regularly, his desire for their maturity enabled by the energy of Christ that powerfully worked in him, resulting in a ministry marked by toil and struggle that was mixed with rejoicing for their sake. And so while he was struggling, he wasn't moping. And again, I remind myself of how often it becomes part of our uh, demeanor that when we are called upon to serve, when we are called upon by the Lord to do things for His body, which has placed us with the responsibility of serving, very often we do it, but begrudgingly. The Apostle Paul served with joy. He rejoiced in his suffering so that he could struggle for their maturity. And so we find that he leaves a tremendous example, and he finishes chapter 1 verse, uh, in verse, 20, in verse 29 by mentioning he's struggling for them to bring the maturity, and he starts up chapter 2 with that same sense that he struggles for them. Now, not, no, not, now, no longer focusing on the church at large, the broader body, but focusing on this group of people who are facing a growing heresy in the Lycus Valley. Verse 2, he says this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This is a particularly difficult verse to to get through. Um, um, it's the way it's written, and what it what it uh, addresses is not things that come to us readily. In fact, as you read this verse, you just have to see in the various versions how uh, every uh, every version presents it almost slightly differently. Uh, the way they, they 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 put the words together. If you read um, any any um, expositors, they all come from slightly different angles, and so this is a difficult passage to get through, and I'm going to try this morning to get us through it so that we have an understanding of what it meant when he encouraged, when he says he encouraged their hearts and that he was determined to struggle, that they may reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Number one, the reason why Paul struggled was that the two things may be may may, may be an outcome. There was a purpose to his struggle. It wasn't just a struggle because he was caught of God. The struggle had a purpose in view. The first purpose he had in view was that their hearts may be encouraged. That was one of the purposes that Paul had in view when he struggled for the saints and tried to get them to grow to maturity, that their hearts may be encouraged. The word is translated encouraged has a wide range of meanings, and so we have to take the meaning of what he's saying from the context in which we find this word, this word is often used in the sense of exhort or persuade. It, is a, it has a sense of getting the ears to move into action, to do something. Uh, when it's used in that sense, it is a strong word. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, we see this word being used in this way. And, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, he exhorted them. It's the kind of, uh, the word used in the way, which means that you're driving people to do something. You're calling them to a response. You're exhorting, and more than just encouraging, you're actually trying to get them to get off a, 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 a point of, uh, of, of being static and move. But Paul is not trying to persuade them to do anything at this point in the letter. In fact, this letter, up until this point, uh, there are no imperatives. There are no commands. There are no, no instructions. The instructions only start from verse six onwards when we move into that section, and it's a clear divide even on in, on that basis alone between verse five and verse six. So up until this point, Paul has been encouraging. Paul has been laying out the plan of salvation. Paul has been laying out the glorious, magnificent person of Christ. He's been laying out his ministry as uh, one who was called to serve. But he hasn't, up to this point, done any admonishing or exhorting. He's simply been encouraging. Sometimes this word is used to translate the word comfort. It can be seen this way in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, in verse 16, where the same apostle says to the Thessalonian church, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. There the word is a bit softer. It speaks about comfort. And comfort usually means that you've come out of something and you're now in a place of rest and peace and it brings comfort to you. He's not using the word in that way either. The word that it is we chooses to use in verse 2 of, uh, of chapter 2 of Colossians is the word encourage. Not quite as forceful as exhort or persuade, but stronger than being confident So Paul is trying to get them to be uh, to be invigorated in a way that is going to help them help him to be prepared for when he actually starts talking about what is facing them and how he wants them to deal with it. And that's for a later sermon. While the difference of these words might be slight, Paul's intention in Colossians is to prepare the believers to deal with, the, with serious problems making inroads into the church. They had not quite succumbed to the plausible arguments yet but needed to be encouraged to remain firm in their faith, as can be seen from the end of verse 5, where it says that. The need for the encouragement of heart is reinforced in chapter 4, where Paul sends Tychicus to tell them all about his activities, but specifically that he may encourage their hearts. Paul was determined to have these saints encouraged, that they may not become despondent uh, because of things he may be saying to them, nor because of what may be happening in the area. The need to encourage these saints to remain foremost in Paul's mind as he ministers to them. So what does it mean to encourage their hearts? We usually superimpose our modern Western concept of heart as being the center of emotions when we read the scripture. Uh, That's our concept. That's a Western modern English concept, that the heart is the center of emotions. This is not the meaning of heart in scripture. It's scriptural meaning. has to do with the designation of the center of the personality, the source of willing and thinking, in addition to feeling. It's that part of us from which uh, we, we, we make decisions and from which we, we will and from which we, we have feelings but express ourselves. It is more than just emotion. We can see this when we look at the Psalms. Psalm chapter 51 says this, as David laments before the Lord as he repents of his sin with Bathsheba. And he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David's not saying, create in me clean emotions, God. He's praying for much more than that. Emotions are just superficial. It's emotions are things that we see after the mind has been put to work and the heart has expressed itself. He says, create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a right spirit within me. David's not seeking to have his emotions changed. He's speaking with God that God may renew his spirit. Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately seek who can understand it? The Lord, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. So Jeremiah is not saying that emotions are deceitful. Emotions can be deceitful, but because that's because they come from a deceitful heart to start with. And so when when this speaks about the heart, it speaks about that part of of man that is deeper than just emotions, and in fact from which emotions may ultimately. Uh, uh, extend together with his will and his decision making, and Paul struggles greatly so that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And some translations and some commentators see this clause being knit together in love as a second person, a second purpose of Paul's struggle for them. I don't think it is. I don't think Paul is struggling them to be encouraged and instructing them to be knit together. And the implication of this is what uh, of this is that. What he's encouraging them to do is already within an environment that is conducive to them being encouraged. And some of the, uh, some of the verses we have, as we read when we read this, uh, this portion, um, sometimes gives the idea that there's two things happening. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love, almost as though these are two equal things. That's what the Holman uh, Christian Study Bible um, has states It states it. NIV says exactly the same thing. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Paul is saying they must do one and the other. Paul is again, I'm, Paul is saying that the heart should be encouraged because they are already in a united uh, fellowship. We heard this morning so much about this unity of the body. Uh, we broke bread and, and and we were told this bread signifies the unity of the body. Um, we we, we shared wine, which again speaks about the unity of the body. We mentioned that more than once. Our body is a single unit uh, of which Christ is the not only the head but of whom he is the Lord and he is a Savior. And so Paul is saying more than just, I want the hearts to be encouraged and that they may be joined in love. He's going to impress on them that their hearts need more being, he wants to encourage their hearts while they are enjoying a, 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 a unity in love. He's already confirmed both the unity and the love as an existing reality. The unity can be inferred from several body references in Colossians. Chapter 1 verse 18, he speaks about Christ being the head of the body of the church, speaking about unity. Colossians chapter 1 verse 24, he speaks, uh, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That's the church. Colossians 3 verse 15, we will eventually get there. He says, And that the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were caught in one body. So they were already a unity. He's not struggling to make them a unity, but Paul can't make them a unity. They are unified because of the work of Christ. They're unified as the body of Christ. And only Christ can bring saints together in this way. He will exhort them later on to work towards this, but but positionally they are already a unified body. They were not only a unified body, but they were a loving unified body. And this can be seen from Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul says, We always thank God... The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. This was a loving church. This was a church that was united. This was a church that was moving together. This was a church that was, was keen to serve others. In fact, in Colossians 1:7, 7, he says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your loveness. But this church, was a loving unit. And so therefore, when Paul says that, I struggle for you, he's struggling not to, to encourage them, but he's struggling to encourage them while they exhibit uh, a, 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 a sense of love. They are living as a, lo- a loving unit. And Paul doesn't need to emphasize that, but he wants him to continue in that. Paul has no need to struggle for them to be knit together in love. They already knit together in love. Being there together in love was not something they had to, had to attain, it was what they already were. And this was, in fact, the context and sphere in which the apostle was striving to encourage their hearts. We're reminded by this that the church is no accident of history. The church isn't just a collection of people who have nothing to do with themselves. The church is not a group of people who have come together because they've devised a constitution for themselves or a common cause. That we leave to clubs and to protest groups and to everything else. The church is a unit, is a unit, a unit, a body, a single entity because we are the body of Christ. We've brought, been brought into this body because of his work on Calvary, because of his death and his resurrection, and because we have been uh, called to salvation and because we have been saved and identify with Christ, we are one body and he is the head. That was exactly what we went through when we looked at chapter 1. And so, uh, this context in which we live, in which we are to encourage not only each other, but to reach out to others like this, not only this church, but others like this, we should encourage them because they're all part of the same single unit, which is bond, bonded together on the basis of love. This is how people know that we are his disciples if we love one another. This is how the world will know that Jesus came and He's the Son of God, if we love one another. So this unity that Paul um, is, 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 is ministering to is there because of the work of Christ, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, and because God has called them together as His body, but He wants them to be encouraged because of things that he will deal with later. The second purpose of Paul's struggle is that they may reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul is about to move on in this letter with instructions about dealing with a heresy that is slowly making his way into the church. This heresy is creeping in, and there is a heresy creeping in, and Paul warns them about a teaching that is built on philosophy, and empty deceit, and on human tradition. It's creeping into the church. And we may think, we live in a time when things are creeping into the church. Things have always crept into the church. No church in any age has been devoid of this. From the very beginning, we find that even at the, in, in the early church, there were those who were trying to reintroduce Judaism, keeping the law, going back to those things from which they had been saved. And so things are always creeping into the church, so that whatever is taught to the church... as is uh, is given to us in the New Testament, is watered down, twisted, put a bit skew, so that we end up uh, being led astray. And Paul says there is a teaching coming, or is prevalent already amongst you, which is based on philosophy, empty deceit, and on human tradition. As he prepares him to deal with the dangers of the encroaching counterfeit religion, he reminds them of the wealth of what they already have, and are about to lose... They give into plausible arguments and to false teachers. There are things we can never lose. The things that are ours because it's being given to us. We can never lose our salvation. If we could, then it was not a salvation given to us on the basis of Christ's person and work and resurrection. We cannot lose our position as children of God. We will always be His children. We cannot lose being the bride of Christ. We are His bride. We may not always act that way. And sometimes we wonder if we deserve to be in those groups. But we are, by God's grace. But if we allow things to creep in, things that come from worldly philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, we start losing what we are called to be, light and salt. We start losing the effect we should have on the world because we start becoming like the world. And when we, when we start being assimilated by the world, we are no longer have a voice in the world, and we become ineffective. And Paul is determined to encourage them that they may remain bonded in love, unity in Christ, and they may remain effective in a, in, a, in a community that was pagan to the core. And as he prepares them to deal with the dangers of the encroaching counterfeit religion, he reminds them of the wealth of what they already have. And they're about, that they are about to lose if they give into plausible arguments of the false teachers. Paul's goal is that they may reach all the riches of full assurance or understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul has already brought before them the riches they have in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He now returns to the truth, encouraging them to attain this riches. Rituals that are not attained through worldly philosophy, but attained through a full assurance of understanding. The assurance that the believer has is not something that is attained by means of mystical, mindless rituals. And this is eventually where the, where the teaching is creeping into this area will be taking people. It's not attained through mystical, mindless rituals. It's attained through understanding. We do ourselves great harm when we try to find hidden meanings in the Scripture. And we do this. And we try and make it, make it seem as though there are some things in Scripture that only can be stood if you go really deep in a mystical way. In this verse, uh, especially when it speaks about the mystery of uh, God, uh, the mystery of this Christ, we, we wonder what this mystery is. Uh, is it something that is hard to understand? We said that very clearly in the past. We say, now again, this mystery is simply... Something that was hidden from the Old Testament saints, and something that was hidden from those who, who loved God, who served God, but did not see uh, the way the church should come into being, the inclusion of the Gentiles, and not see that all that would happened then to Gentiles and the rest of the church uh, would be, be placed in Christ, of which they themselves want to be part and be worshippers of the Messiah. We do ourselves great harm when we try and find hidden meanings in Scripture, all we need to know is made really available to us if we are prepared to apply our minds and understanding to the Scripture. The Scripture does not get approached with a closed mind. It's not... Understanding the Scripture isn't open to everybody because you need to understand the Scripture as the Holy Spirit illuminates the pages to you. You can only have the Holy Spirit within you to illuminate the pages to you if you have been saved. You can only be saved if you have responded to the call of the gospel, repent of your sin, and and by faith placed in your heart by the Holy Spirit and by God, responded and found salvation. And when those things take place, you are then able to read the scriptures with a mind that's not devoid of understanding. You approach the scriptures with understanding. The scriptures are written to be understood. It's written so that we can read, understand, apply, and live accordingly. Otherwise, it would just be another mystical book that we can say anything about and Paul strives to encourage their hearts, that which is the center of the personality, the source of willing and thinking. He also strives for them so that they may apply their minds, so they may set into action a wonderful, tra- a wonderful chain of events. The combination of heart and understanding is not something new to us. We know this well from other scriptures. We read it again, we say, well, what's he speaking about? Well, heart and, and mind and understanding, it's, it, it's, it's all over in the scriptures. Let me take you to one, to one, to one passage for, for the sake of time. Go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. And we see that these terms are not terms that we should be scared of looking at because they appear everywhere in Scripture. Matthew chapter 12, from verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and said to Jesus and heard him disputing with another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, asked Jesus, what commandment is the most important of all? Verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is Israel. This is the Shema. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In other words, with your entire being. Listen to the response that this scribe gives. When he says in verse uh, 32, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offering and sacrifice. So, this scribe takes it to its soul and mind and condenses it into this word understanding. And the Lord doesn't change it, the Lord doesn't, does, doesn't condemn it. In fact, the Lord says, You're not far from the kingdom. And so, we see that when it comes to understanding not only God's word, but when responding to God, we do so not in a way which is. Uh, out of our body not in a way which is without our mind we do so we respond to god we obey him and we love him using our our heart our mind our soul and our body everything every part of us is required to worship god and when we read the scriptures bring all of that to bear because what we read in the scriptures and what we understand with our mind and what we commit to understanding, and as we seek the wisdom of God, those things that we learn, we obey, and we find that we work those things out through our body in this world, as we endeavor to live for Christ, and live in a way which honors Him. Yet we clearly see that we cannot obey and love God if we do not use our heart and our understanding. And this is done while in our bodies, or as Matthew records, with our strength. The spiritual life we live is not lived detached from reality, not something that requires special knowledge that only some can attain. The spiritual life life is lived out now as ordinary people who have been changed, who have changed hearts, changed minds, and changed understanding. We are no different to anybody else in this world who has been born as we have from, from natural mothers. We have all been born the same way, With the same uh, propensity to sin because we are all born in sin and as sinners. But at some point in our lives, those of us who are able to claim the name of Christ and acknowledge him as Savior and Lord, those of us who acknowledge him as Savior and Lord, those of us who are in in that category, our minds have been opened, our hearts have been changed, for hearts of stone and our hearts of flesh. the uh, hearts have been deceitful and uh, desperately wicked has now been changed so we're able to respond to God's word in a way which only those who are redeemed can and our understanding is illuminated by the script by the spirit so that we are able to understand God's word and live accordingly. Colossians chapter 1 verse 9 says this and so from the day we heard we've not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom and understanding is a is a inseparable part of the Christian life. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We cannot walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We cannot walk fully pleasing to Him. We cannot bear fruit and increase in knowledge if we do not allow our minds to be be taught by the Word, our understanding to be Um, governed by the word so that when we understand God's word we can then live accordingly and walk in a manner worthy of him and pleasing to him Paul's intention is to steer the Colossian believers away from a philosophy that denied all of this and which would rob them of the riches that was rightly theirs and what are these riches what is this wealth this wealth is the assurance that comes from understanding but they would not have this assurance if they succumb to the mystical religions of a pagan world rather than understanding the knowledge of the mystery of God. And what is this mystery of God? It's Christ. The mystery of God is Christ. The riches that is theirs is attained through assurance, and the assurance they have comes from the understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God, and the mystery of God is an open secret to those who believe. It's none other than Christ himself. Christ in them, the hope of glory. And I think the the, the NASB takes this verse and states it in a way which helps us to understand it in that way. The NASB states this part of chapter 2, verse 2, in this way, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ Himself. And so we see as we endeavor to live a life uh, that we uh, that is separate from the world, a life that the world can never live and never achieve, no matter, matter how much they want to do that they can do it because of the riches that we are uh, able to attain the assurance that we are able to have because of understanding, and that that results and as that results in the true knowledge of god 's mystery that is Christ himself, as we have all of this packaged into our salvation, it makes us different to the world, different in a way which uh, reflects that God has worked in our lives, and that Christ is the Christ in us, the hope of glory. We'll ask the question before, how can Christ be in us? Well, the, not only is Christ in us, but we are in Him, and that is a miraculous work of God, as He's changed us, and made us all over again. We are not recycled human beings. We are not people being been taken and put through a, uh, a machine to reshape us, uh, using all parts. We have been made over anew with Christ in us and us being Christ. We are new creations We are made over totally we may look the same And we may grow uglier by the day as all of us do around us And we may recognize other as just normal fallible human beings. That's fine. That's the outside but the real person the one that indeed is uh, The one who indeed is will go into eternity is the one who has been changed We are new creations, our minds have been changed, our hearts have been changed, our desires have been changed, our will has been changed, no longer is our will bound and under dominion and enslaved to sin, our will is now enslaved to the Spirit, and He is the one who gives us the propensity to live lives that honor Him, that glorify God, and that reflect the life of Christ in us. Verse 3, in verse 3, Paul amplifies all that has been said about Christ in the foregoing verse but beautifully compacting the high point of who Christ is into a short clause. He says, this Christ, the mystery of God who is Christ, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I'm not going to unpack the teaching on wisdom and knowledge. I am going to tell you, go back to the sermons that we've had. We had three sermons on wisdom and knowledge from James. Go back and start understanding how what wisdom looks like when we recognize that wisdom comes from God. The only wisdom that counts, and the only wisdom that is of any value, and the only wisdom that we can live according to in this world as, as God's people is a wisdom that comes from God. Not a lot of wisdom that comes from experience, not a lot of wisdom that comes from common sense, a wisdom that comes from God that brings understanding us of what God of God's will, and helps and causes us to walk in such a way that His will is fulfilled and is glorified and honored by us. He says, "Christ is the one in whom um, is a quote. Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to God." Let me quote that again. Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to God. He is a storehouse in which is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's point is that wisdom and knowledge are now freely available in Christ. Anyone who comes to know him by faith can draw from this store all the wisdom and knowledge they need. We have a resource that is boundless. We have a resource that is without without any any harms around it. I'm not sure even how to say it, because we understand clearly that we cannot put Christ in a box as we do with so many things. We cannot put the word of God in a box, because though it's held between two covers, it is inexhaustible as God's mind and words revealed to those whom he has called, and even to the world who is able to read and may not understand, but one day will be judged from its same book as God calls them uh, to judgment. In verse 3, Paul uses words that sound like they come from the Old Testament, It's not hard to see the similarity between the words of Colossians and the words that Paul uses when he speaks about this treasure, this wisdom, this understanding, this knowledge. In Proverbs chapter 2, and you may want to turn there. Proverbs chapter 2, I'll read it to you. My son, says the wise man, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. That's who wisdom is for. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. You can't walk in integrity if you're not applying the wisdom that God gives you. Guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of His saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be present to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech. We cannot separate a godly walk from godly wisdom. And Paul is writing to a church who is walking fine. They are not off the rails yet. They are not already succumbing to the teaching of the false of f- uh, philosophies around him but he wants to encourage him to remain there to continue to walk in a way that does not follow perverted men not follow men would lead them astray would not change their minds and thereby change their hearts and eventually hamper their walk in verse 4 paul says this i say this what is just said in verse three, and every way up to uh, the first chapter, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Which means that if we're not careful, we can be deluded with plausible arguments. If we're not careful, if we allow our minds to be captivated by those things that are not, do not uh, arise out of godly wisdom, we may find ourselves being deluded and led astray. Paul clearly expresses his intention for everything he has written in the foregoing verses. His intention is that the believers in the likeness valley may not be deluded with plausible arguments. What is a plausible argument? It's a persuasive argument, especially intended to deceive. It's an argument that sounds reasonable, and you'd appear foolish not to believe it, to act upon it. In fact, we have a term for that today. We, were, we are told that this is a plausible argument because it's got a scientific basis. Boom. When you hear the word scientific basis, you run. When you hear the word, oh, science has proven this, you run. Because there are certainly certain things we can prove by science, uh, things that are testable, things where hypotheses can be presented and tested and proven to be right or wrong. But what goes for science today is nothing more than vain, empty philosophy. And And Christians are being deluded because these arguments sound so plausible. We watch changes in the weather and we say, well, maybe climate change is real. Climate change is real, but it's not man made. We need to understand clearly through a biblical lens when these things take place, we must use the wisdom God has given us, the understanding we have from His Word, apply it to our lives so that when we are faced by the world, we're not deluded by the plausible arguments. There's something that is that's actually I find extremely um Disconcerting me, people who know better agree with a phrase which is making its inroads into our lives through what seems to be a plausible argument. Remember there was an old one which, is, which, which went with, um, with um, evolution. Uh, as we all know, when they say as we all know, they're trying to wrap it into their way of thinking and say, well, if you're not as we know, then you obviously are a flat earther. There's a, a, a phrase that's creeping into every conversation around gender uh, gender talk, around transgenderism, around uh, gender equality. It's this phrase, that when you are born, you are assigned the sex by a doctor. No man can assign your sex. These are plausible arguments. And Christians say, well, no, we understand that, that you can have your sex assigned or uh, but you can't have your gender assigned. We've fallen into the trap right away. God assigns your sex. God assigns your gender. All a doctor does is affirm what God has done. And so, when we hear these things, be careful, we hear that Paul is struggling, not struggling that he's battling, dude, but his struggle is because of his heart has been moved, to prepare these believers that are not caught up in something which sounds right to their ear, but it's the wrong thing for their hearts. We are caught in the same trap every single day. Be careful. We should be like the Colossian church and resist any plausible argument that comes from man's uh, own philosophies and worldly views. This verse sets up the rest of the chapter. Verse 4 sets up the rest of the chapter because Paul has now introduced the possibility of plausible arguments being introduced into this church at Colossae. This visits is for the rest of the chapter and most of the rest of, the, of this epistle, where Paul will challenge these plausible arguments in detail, but for now he reminds them why it's writing to them. Saints he has never seen, but for whom he continues to struggle as he continues to pray for them. Verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am present, or yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Verse 5 draws to a close a very long opening, which starts in chapter 1, verse 3. A very long opening in in, in this epistle. Paul has dealt with the work of God. He's dealt with the centrality of Christ in all things. He's dealt with his ministry to the church. He will now focus, for the rest of this book, on the church itself. He's gradually moved down, and I said this this to you when I started preaching this, uh, uh, Colossians. Paul slowly moves down uh, through these uh, sections, as he focuses eventually on the church, which was his primary objective, to first prepare them to understand who they were, uh, what was the origin of, uh, of their faith, the origin of who they were, of who they worship, of who they are focused on, on where, they, where their wisdom lies, of where their strength lies, of who they belong to. He has impact all of that. And then he's used himself as an example of how this unpacks in the life of one person. And he he expresses not only his desire to pray for them, but to labor for them. And we know he labored for them incessantly. Even though this church has never met him, and though Paul desires to meet him, to meet them, he still treats them as he does with every other church, laboring for for them as a labor of love. He closes the section chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, almost the same way he started, in verse 1 of this uh, chapter, he identifies them as those who had not seen his face in the flesh, or face to face. He ends this by saying here that he is absent in body. And this physical separation is softened by what he says, that those not with them in body, he's them in spirit. Perhaps we can unpack that a bit on Wednesday. It's no time to unpack it now. But we have to think, what does it mean by being with them in spirit? Uh, was this an out-of-body experience? Or was this a phrase that has a certain meaning? And this appears more than once. He uses the Corinthians. we uses it more than once. So he says, though I am not with you in body, I'm with you in spirit. We will try and unpack that on Wednesday. But the physical separation is also softened by his knowledge of their good order, their firm faith in Christ. So while the Apostle Paul is languishing in their own prison, while he's struggling for them, uh, in that he's, he, he's concerned about of what they are facing, while he consistently prays for them, while he listens to those who have come to him from this area, Epaphras being one of them, Philemon being another one, or rather Anismus being another one. As as he listens to them, as they bring him news about what's happening in the valley, he sends news back to them. And so there's this labor of love that is worked out through several people, but he wants to be with them, even though he cannot be with them. And so this physical separation is also softened by this knowledge of their good order, their firm faith in Christ. Paul started the section in chapter 2, verse 1, by using an athletic term. The word struggle is a word that could be used to fight as a boxer, fight as a wrestler. That's what he uses. He starts this chapter with an athletic term. He now uses a military term, or military terms, to close this chapter. He speaks about their good order, and he speaks about their firmness. Good order speaks about a disciplined formation. Uh, Lorenzo will know all about that uh, when he marched with the army. A disciplined formation. An army that doesn't march in a disciplined formation is an army that's in disarray. This was an army that was marching in a disciplined formation, which means they had not yet succumbed to the devastation that had come upon them had they succumbed uh, to the plausible arguments of those around them. Not only were they in disciplined formation and in good order, but they were firm in the faith. This firmness speaks about standing strong, about not breaking ranks, but not being split open because you allow the enemy to come in, but not about being uh, devastated because you let down your guard, you've broken the ranks. They were disciplined, they were of good order, and they were firm in their faith. They were sticking together. The one is about marching information, the other is about breaking rank. This is a beautiful picture of how the church should present itself before the world in the face of opposition. The world is determined through politics, through social agendas, through education, to split the church. And the way it's going to split the church is by splitting the family. And the way it's going to split the family is by, it's by splitting the way that you think. And as it starts messing around with your understanding, your uh, the wisdom that you should have, as you jettison those things that you've learned from your youth, uh, those who have grown up in church, as you jettison those things you've learned from the scriptures, and as they split your thinking, they will eventually split your family. And as families are split, society is split, and we will see that inroads into the church. This church is still standing firm. This church is still holding rank. This church is still determined to remain focused on uh, enjoying the riches that are theirs because of the wealth they have in Christ. The fact that Paul is able to rejoice in this is an indication that the church is still in fairly good spiritual spiritual shape. And Paul is determined that it remains this way. Giving it to the false teachers who be breaking those ranks. How does this affect us? How does this impact us? Is this just a a historical account of the Christian church under Paul's apostleship, and we fight it away under good things to know. If that's the case, then this is meaningless to us. But there are lessons for us to learn. For just as Paul encouraged the saints, uh, encouraged their hearts, uh, strove to make sure that uh, his message reached them in such a way that they would be strengthened, We need to do exactly the same. We're living in days when if we don't do that, if we do not encourage another brother's heart, if we don't do that, when the time comes for us to be encouraged, there'll be nobody to encourage us. This is a reciprocal relationship. We are caring for each other. We are laboring to serve each other. We're not concerned about our own needs first. We're concerned about others before us because you do that as an act of worship to the God we serve. Number two, to encourage them to have hearts and minds fixed on Christ. We are seeing churches fall by the wayside. Churches are the ones that walked well. Churches that would we either are considered churches of like mind. Churches who preach the gospel as we know it. We see these churches falling by the way. And it's because they have taken their eyes off Christ. And so much of self-glory, so much of pomp and splendor, so much of self-aggrandizement, and so much of a victim of talented mentality has crept into the church. And the eyes are focused on themselves and we focus, when we focus our eyes on ourselves, we can't focus on Christ. We can only look in one direction at a time. When we do that, we will no longer stand firm in our faith. We will not be in good order and we will fall. Do we make an effort to protect each other from being deluded by plausible arguments of the world? Do we challenge each other when we use words like, I understand that our sex is assigned at birth? When we hear that? Do we resist that? Do we correct that? Do we have iron sharpening iron? And there are so many things that happen in that way. We say things, and we know it is wrong, and we leave the challenge unsaid. And so instead of encouraging our brother and sister's heart, we, we sacrifice him to plausible arguments. How will we all rank and file when we're faced with opposition? John right now is facing opposition. John knows the reality of this. It may come our way soon. What will happen when we do have opposition coming into our ranks? And it comes in anyways. And very often, it doesn't come from without, it comes from within. Those wolves in sheep's clothing come from within. Those shepherds who are not true shepherds come from within. Those saints who are not true saints but false saints are within. And so, when that happens to us, are we prepared to hold rank, stay in line, resist opposition, encourage and strengthen each other, and serve Christ, who is in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your, your goodness to us. Our words fail us when we think about the life you've brought us into, And more than that, Lord, the glorious future, that which waits for us ahead, when time has passed away and when all things have been laid under His feet, we are indeed, Lord, thrilled to think about the glorious future, not for ourselves only, but to be in His presence, to worship and glorify You, and to live a life that is indeed reflects that which honors You in every way. We pray for Your blessing upon us in the Savior's name and for His sake alone. Amen.